Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I'm your host, Tiasha Zeitz, and today I'm taking you to New Zealand. When this discussion was recorded on 20th November, New Zealand, which has 4.9 million people, only had 50 reported cases of COVID in the whole country. The reason the country is successful in containing the virus better than most countries in the world is the discipline of people, says Scott Errol, the former CEO of NZ Healthcare IT, an organization connecting insurers, healthcare providers and the healthcare industry. Scott is soon leaving the organization after running it for over six years. In the discussion you are about to hear, he talked about the character of New Zealanders, the complexity of the healthcare system, the hurdles related to digitalization of healthcare, and also explained how New Zealand approached the COVID-19 pandemic. So today, unlike most of the rest of the world, People can meet and attend live events in person. Enjoy the show and to read the recap of the discussion or browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Among the discussions about healthcare systems, you can listen to a recently published talk with Dr. Louise Shaper about healthcare and digitalization in Australia. Before that, you can find discussions about Spain and France, episodes 97 to 100 focused on South America, and there have been series about Asia and Africa published last year. Enjoy the show and to be notified about upcoming episodes automatically, Subscribe and the episodes will be automatically added to your podcast library. Now, to New Zealand. Scott, let's start with where you are at the moment. You left the New Zealand Health IT after six and a half years. What's your reflection on digital health development and the development of NZ Health IT in the last decade? It's come a long way, actually. It's been really enjoyable to be part of it and, and also to witness you know, so much that's been happening. So um, if we cast back, say, 10 years, uh, I'd say the, we're sort of in the, in the period of quite a bit of fragmentation so the you know there'd been a lot of systems developed in New Zealand you know by some some quite entrepreneurial uh, uh, software developers like uh, Ian McRae from Orion Health and people like that and as well it also it had been uh, systems that were purchased from offshore companies so the whilst it was it was okay it was fairly fragmented across the whole country so we've seen that has started to change it has taken a while um but we're now starting to see more i i guess consistency of systems and then the move towards more interoperability for nz hit itself we've sort of progressed um quite considerably so there was we're a mem- we're an organizational membership so we have corporate and organizational members and um so we've gone from so 65 members 
um, sort of six and a half years ago to we're sitting on about 160 now and and continue to grow. So in terms with membership organizations, um, we talk about net growth, you know, because you lose certain number of members every year. There's a bit of attrition. Uh, so our net growth over the last six plus years has been fantastic. You basically almost tripled the membership since you uh, took on the position of a leader of the organization. And 70% of um, the members are from health IT industry and the rest are non-IT members such as healthcare providers and private insurance. Sounds like a perfect base for collaboration and actually driving progress. Is that the case? So how do members collaborate and work together? A lot of it is um, about sort of like me, I suppose, creating that sort of glue to join them, join them all together, stick them together at times. And uh, yeah, the whole area of broadening out our membership it was and, and mixing it up was sort of a strategy that I put into place when I not long after I arrived on the scene because my background's not in IT. I've been in healthcare delivery uh, for a very long time in New Zealand, sort of 18 plus years, uh, including this role. You know, I was involved with the delivery and management and delivery of care, a lot of that in aged care and home-based care and community and primary. And uh, what I found coming into this role is there was a disconnect between sort of the software writers, the software providers, developers, and what was actually happening at the coalface. Strategically, I set about sort of um, creating you know, broadening out the membership so that we would have healthcare providers and policymakers and funders um, from other parts of the sector who know uh, how important IT is to their business and to their delivery of care. For some reason, uh, being all members um, within that same ecosystem, it became simpler to be able to say, hey, you know, I might be talking to someone who, who's telling me they've got a problem with something, might be somewhere in their service delivery uh, model and how they might want to mobilize that or change it. Um, and then I, knowing what my IT members are up to, I could say, oh, well, look, I think you should speak to this, these one, two or three members. And that started to you know, work really well. Um, when members join, I uh, spend time with them to understand what it is that makes them tick. If you're an IT provider, what's, what is the thing or what, what are the things that you do that, that you believe um, deliver value and uh, is your value proposition and and what problems are you solving in the health system you know i'm always talking to people who for some reason are telling me what their problems are and not not necessarily their personal problems but their their professional problems that they're wanting to solve and it becomes quite simple really to start gluing gluing people together or joining them up the next level they may not be members but they're very close to the membership because in some way or another they they can influence um, yeah, what our members uh, do or don't do. If we dig into that a little bit further, what kind of problems did you see that got solved, you know, in the last six uh, and a half years? New Zealand has had a digital health strategy from 2017, which is kind of new. So that's it's, it sounds like it's still fresh to think about how you want to digitize healthcare on the national level. True. Um, there's been sort of strategies in some form or another for quite some time, you know, bef even before 2017. I think 2017 sort of became a, a period where it was, uh, we'd say, more formalized as the, as the latest sort of strategy or framework. 
and part part of the issue in the past with sort of government agencies creating a strategy as such um, has been you know all good intention and in fact the strategies have been very good as as strategies go but from a governmental perspective uh, not really supported with um, resources or finance funding to make those strategies turn into actions uh, from a ministry of health uh, perspective you know, it's been quite some time of uh, trying to um, get the sector so to speak to fund the things that should be done or could be done nationally uh, because of, um, the New Zealand health system for a small country it's it's tends to be quite complex in a way but fundamentally we have these district health boards and and they have, there's 20 of them across New Zealand and uh, they uh, have there's four regions so these they sort of aggregate across four regions and the funding goes to the to the DHBs the district health boards so they each district health board you know sort of creates its budget and its plan and gets signed off at um, what the Treasury and the Ministry of Health and the Minister of Health and there's lots of sign-offs and all that sort of thing and then every year we have our, our government does a budget announcement in May usually in May and you know that spells out the funding for the next few years generally, but particularly the the next 12 months um, for all government agencies. So the bulk of that, I think it's about 75% um, of uh, what's called vote health, that's the funding to, to public health in New Zealand, go to DHBs. You know, say the Ministry of Health or anybody else, any other agency wants to do something, let's say on a national basis, you've got to kind of influence and convince and get agreement from all of the DHBs or most of them that they will put in a share of their money to help pay for it. Mm. Um, and the ministry has some money, but not enough to do, you know, these, these large scale projects. So you can imagine it's, you know, fairly, you know, there's quite a bit of influencing that's involved. And sometimes over the, you know, the history um, of, of that sector, you know, some DHBs have bought into doing something on a national level. Uh, others haven't. And, some sort of sit on the fence in between. You know, it's kind of they'll they'll wait and see if something is going to work before they'll commit to it. But ultimately, the DHBs sort of um, have have let's say the power because they have most of the money. New Zealand, you know, about twenty billion. It's probably close to now to twenty one billion dollars. New Zealand dollars is spent in vote health. So you know, very large proportion of that is apportioned to all the DHBs, and then they determine what they spend it on. You mentioned that there's uh, 20 district health boards and uh, New Zealand has 84 public hospitals that are kind of combined into these district health boards. So I really wonder, how does healthcare differ among these district health boards? You said that uh, if you are a provider of a solution, you have to go to each board separately. So are these boards competitive among each other? You know, is there a desire to be the best district health board? So how does the quality of care that's delivered um, differ across New Zealand? Is that a problem? Um, I, it does vary. Uh, well, I, I'd say quality of care... Um, I think it's fantastic. I think number, you know, I think for the way that the system works or at times doesn't work, we, um, I believe that, that we actually deliver, um, you know, above average care across the board. Now, in, gen in general terms, and, you know, there'll be areas, of course, where we, 
don't you know as a country we do better better in some areas and not very well in other areas so we're not don't let me um sort of paint the picture that we're absolutely perfect but um the the problems that DHBs have is really a function of size. So we'll have, you know, there are, um, let's say, half a dozen, six uh, DHBs that are quite large because of the area that they cover. And in Auckland, where I am, uh, where I live, we've got what we call the the three um, metro DHBs. So there's there's three large DHBs that cover the, the greater Auckland area. Um, and they uh, those three are, are joined by... The one from called Northland or DHB, which is we call it up north. So it's a, it's the northern district um, area, um, and it's a smaller DHB with rural, lots of rural. Um, one only one large hospital in uh, a city called Fangarei, and then a lot of rural settings, quite widespread and and lower socioeconomic areas. So you sort of got these three large metro DHBs. Uh, and each one of them has their own specific kind of um, populations to deal to to um, serve, um, and and then the one the Northland one um, is quite different to those other three metro because it's more a rural type setting, and um, so they form one region or they fall into one region called the, called the Northern region. So you get quite a lot of variability uh, across those. You know, we've got Waitamata DHB, which is the DHB in the area that I live, is. I think it's the largest, so it's it gets quite a lot of funding. It's um, and I'm just picking at numbers here. You know, let's say it's close to 1.4 or 1.5 billion dollars of, of funding for that DHB alone, but that reflects the population that it's serving. Um, whereas the the one north of us, Fung- uh, Northland DHB, you know, gets substantially less. Funding, you know, less lower population, but in 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 lots of cases, higher levels of what we call deprivation um, and low socioeconomic um, sort of uh, uh, population. So so it's quite variable. And then when you've got uh, smaller DHBs, and, and we still get areas, we have an area called Rotorua, which for uh, for a lot of tourists, when they're able to come to New Zealand again, or have been in New Zealand in the past, we have this geothermal area, um, you know, in that sort of Rotorua area, it's called, and um, very popular for tourism. Uh, but um, from a population base, it's kind of, uh, it's not growing, it's not really shrinking, but it, again, low socioeconomic in general terms. Um, and their funding sort of makes it very hard for them to do anything that's innovative over and above just um delivering whatever core services they can the best they can. So, you know, then we get down to South Island, we get Canterbury DHB, which is, you know, the largest DHB in, in the South Island of New Zealand. They get quite a lot of funding. They've done a lot of innovation when it comes to IT. Um, and then the South Island DHBs um, have sort of joined up with their region and they've kind of got quite a high collaborative model. So they do a lot of innovation across their region, which – which kind of works well for them because of the, the let's say the the popula- population uh, bases that each of those DHBs serve. Um, so I'm not quite sure if I've answered your question, but it's quite it can be variable when it comes to IT. Um, that's probably even more pronounced because DHBs that have struggled um, to you know if they got if they're a small DHB, you know they can't invest as much or haven't been able to invest as much into their IT systems. Which is kind of a paradox because 
rural areas or remote areas are the ones that we tend to hear are the most uh, in need for telemedicine and other digital health solutions, right? That's right, yeah, and um, that's a good point because it sort of comes down to then each individual DHB doing what it can and kind of you get a leader, you know, say the CEO of a DHB or you'll get a, um, a clinical lead quite often who has a, let's say, a passion for, uh, for example, virtual healthcare or telehealth. Um, and I know in Whangarei, for example, Northland DHB area, they've done they've done a lot in that area and they've kind of, I guess they've been able to get some funding from their their pool of money um, to do some of their local projects and and because there's a definite need for it. Other DHBs where they possibly should be doing more of it um, haven't been and it does tend to reflect um, uh, across their sort of leadership group, I suppose, and also governance, you know, so our, our board, the boards of our district health boards are a mixture of an elected, so we have um, public elections, and they, the board members is I think two thirds of the board members are elected by the the local local population group um, that that DHB serves, and then the remainder are appointed by the Minister of Health. So, so they're government appointees, including the chair and deputy chair, are, are always appointed by the Minister of Health. Um, so you can get uh, a variability across the governance levels, which does tend to it can filter through into the leadership and so on, um, and. Also remembering or keeping in mind, our DHBs run it uh, largely at deficit. So whilst you know they get their funding, uh, the majority of them, and in fact, I think at the moment all of them um, struggle to let, let's say operate within the funding that they're allocated. They they run into deficits. So effectively, if, were, if they were private companies, they would be in you know uh, quite considerable loss positions most of the time, which does tend to drive a lot of their decision-making. Um, you can understand that you know, they need to deliver health services to their local people, um, so they're going to cut back in some other areas. And sometimes um, IT is not seen as a high priority. That's quite common. You know, If you have to choose between a new MRI machine or a new healthcare IT system, it's usually pr- quite clear which one's going to get chosen. What, what caused the deficit that you mentioned and the struggles that some district health boards are facing? Oh, that's a that's a very uh, a politically charged question. Frankly, it's, uh, <laughs> it depends. It does actually depend your, sort of your political persuasion and your maybe your your view of the health system at any given time. And my experience, uh, you know, I'll I'll just pass on my personal experience based on you know, sort of, as I said earlier, eighteen eighteen or so years in the health sector in New Zealand, and I've observed it uh, across different governments. You know, so we we currently have what we call a Labour. A Labour-led government, and they've just been elected in with quite a high majority. And um, we have an, uh, a mixed member proportional voting system in New Zealand. So generally, and that's been in place for, a, gosh, a long time. Um, and that tends to force coalitions um, of government, you know, a government that's a coalition over a number of parties, depending on the voting and all that sort of thing. Um, so my comment is more, I've seen... There's the trend with DHBs or uh, now public system for quite some time, and it's it's apolitical in my view, in the way that I view it, because we've 
had governments of different, you know, we might have a, uh, let's say, a more right-leaning government or a left-leaning or in the middle. Um, it doesn't tend to change what happens in the health system for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them come in with very good intentions and generally by the time they've served there, we have three-year election periods Um it's unusual for a government to only be in for one for one term of three years. So six or nine years might be the period. And uh, usually they come in with very good intentions and they leave without really um, what I call cracking the nut. You know, they haven't really solved the, the fundamental problems. So anyway, I'm just giving you that ground, the ground there on, on what, how it's, this is my opinion rather than a, 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 a professional view. But I, I think largely there's, the funding is determined, firstly, by what uh, what's a very complicated system. Well, it's complicated to the outsider. Um, it's based on a sort of population health basis. So it says that um, if you've got, you know, your population is growing in your district health board area and you might have a diversity of population groups. So let's say you've got you know, so, uh, so Maori, Pacific Island, Asian, um, a Pākehā, a European, and um, you've got quite a mix there, but you might have within that mix, uh, you know, some areas that are what we termed low deprivation or, um, sorry, high deprivation, um, which is generally linked to low socioeconomic. And um, so if you've got, you know, unfortunately, if you've got growth in your area of that type of population base uh, um, cohort, then your funding yeah, your funding is sort of skewed uh, to, towards them, uh, towards more funding for them, but less funding for where where people might be in a higher socioeconomic area. But you you might have far greater population growth. Um, mm-hmm. So so it's it's quite complex, and I don't even fully understand it. We our treasury government minister of ministry of health and our treasury kind of work all that out. It does tend to. Uh, my observation over the years, it does tend to penalise um, smaller DHBs uh, who have um, larger populations of lower socioeconomic, and mm-hmm. uh, because it was, there tends to be higher population growth in that category um, and less of of uh, let's say higher higher socioeconomic, um, but it's not the funding they get based on that formula never really seems to let them or give them the ability um, to, to really deliver, you know, um, let's say frontline services, proactive frontline services that are going to get ahead, ahead of the curve um, and, and help people to kind of, in a way, take more responsibility for their own health care and their own well-being. Um, it's, a, it's a really, it's a, it's a very difficult cycle to break and it, it always feels as if there's just never enough um, funding and resources to, yeah, you know, to to create a circuit breaker. You actually in May warned that there is a shortfall of at least three hundred million a year to bring healthcare IT infrastructure up to a point where New Zealand can achieve full digital transformation. So I wonder, you know, what is the digital infrastructure like at the moment? Where are the priorities? It comes from a historical base of underinvestment. It's never really enabled the system and the people within the system to invest, you know, in a in a very stable, strong health IT platform. Again, it's variable. We've got some good systems, stable systems. We've got some that are probably sort of 
creaking at the seams and and struggling to keep up. And it's difficult because of the way these things are accounted for, but to actually quantify it um, exactly. But my calculation is that that's whatever it is at the moment. It's about three hundred to even four hundred million a year. Uh, less than it should be and that's based on also enough money more money being spent to help catch up so where it currently currently sits now is that in the last say three to four years i've seen um on a positive note i've seen an increase in the the level of skill experience and competency of the the leadership in in the in the public health system uh, in the health IT area um so from a people aspect i've seen some really good improvements it's not yet consistent it's up and down but it's better than what it was and then we are starting to see some dhbs realizing that unless they do invest in their IT infrastructure they can't innovate and they actually you know, i talk about getting ahead of that that curve in terms of the healthcare provision Starting, it's re- because of the leadership they've brought in or, or uh, improved. Uh, they're getting the right messaging and the right um, strategic focus now, and saying, "Well, actually, you're not going to get ahead ahead of you know sort of um, health issues until we can use IT in a much more innovative way." Mm-hmm. And the big struggle has been DHBs that have not had very stable and strong or suitable uh, just the basic IT infrastructure, wanting and trying to do innovative things with their IT, but it hasn't really been coming off. It hasn't been working because there's, there's the baseline, there's their infrastructure that hasn't allowed it. You know, they, it's like what I call sort of, they've all wanted the bright, shiny stuff, but they sort of kind of put it on, on sort of, you know, very, very faded old infrastructure mm-hmm. and it doesn't do what they expect it to do. That's changing. So, which is a really good thing. Um, and we've got the national health information platform business case that's, that's moving. It's a bit glacial. It's a bit slow. I support it. NZ hit and its members support it because it will, uh, start to see more inf- uh, investment put into IT infrastructure and we'll start to see areas like interoperability, digital identity, uh, a number of well, again, those bright, shiny things that, that we should have now, um, and we've attempted, but haven't worked so well. Um, we'll, you know, with investment in, in, uh, the, uh, the health information platform, you know, will start to, you know, make some really good progress for us. Um, going into, um, lockdown back in March this year, um, COVID's kind of put a little, you can understand probably happened globally. It put quite a, uh, break on, anything any other type of investment um within government uh, just while we've fought the whole covid situation you know speaking of covid uh, end of november nz health it organized the summit and unlike in the rest of the world this was not an online but actually an in person event this was possible since on november 19th new zealand only had 50 active cases of covid in the whole country which is quite uh, something that the rest of the world can be envious about. End of spring, the country even pronounced that the disease has been beaten, you know, you were COVID-free. So I wonder, what role does technology play in this story? Does it play a role at all? Or was it just pure discipline with lockdowns and the fact that New Zealand is an island, which does make a few things easier when it comes to transmission? I think it was the discipline. I think New Zealand and New Zealanders are, um, let's say from a cultural perspective, where I think we have a high level of community uh, kind of awareness, sort of doing the right thing for our fellow New Zealanders. 
I don't know whether you know or not, but we, we, we our nickname are Kiwis, you know, so we're after our, our um, sort of, uh, or it's one of our native birds. Um, ironically, it's a bird that can't fly, but uh, and it's got a very long beak. But uh, I'm not quite sure why we get called kiwis, but we do. Um, the so, firstly, um, de- definitely that when our government at the time, you know, at that time when you know clearly things looked were looking very bad for the whole world, you know, and our government that you know said, look, we're going to have to you know uh, go hard and go fast, you know, and all of us are going to have to get in behind this. Well. And most of us did. There was obviously some, but very, that didn't really support it. But um, I, you know, they, they were very much a, a very small minority. Um, so yeah, firstly, I think because um, just the way that we are, we kind of knuckled down, we we hunkered down at home and went into lockdown, and and none of us were that happy about it. But we knew that that's what we had to do. So that I think that forms the basis of why we are where we are now. And um, the other thing too to recall, uh, keep in mind that fifty or so with COVID. In fact, at the moment there might only be two or three that are not in managed isolation. In fact, because we have cases every day at the moment, but they are cases that are in managed isolation. So when and they are people who have come into the country, uh, you know, flown in, uh, for residents or New, Ze- uh, New Zealand citizens, um, then they have to immediately go into two week lockdown. We've got hotels that have been converted into into um, isolation u- um, um, buildings or units, and they get tested. I think at least twice during that time. They can't they can't leave until they've had a, a positive. Their final test is positive. There has been the just recently uh, some minor outbreaks and what we call community cases, uh, and it, they seem to be linked to managed isolation. So they might be a worker in a isolation unit that's obviously picked it up somehow and got it but because of our system well it does get found very quickly and and they kind of clamp down on it really really fast new zealand's being an island nation definitely has helped because we've been able to close the border so to speak certainly hasn't helped some of our industries like like tourism for example but we've got a very strong agricultural sector so we and we produce good food so a lot of our economy at the moment in that respect is with exporting food you know quite strong except transport's an issue i understand but uh, so anyway coming back to it we weren't and probably like most countries except say the taiwans of the world who'd experienced sars and other outbreaks over the past 20 years as a country and as a public health system we weren't prepared at all you know for a pandemic of this sort it uh sort of did what it could i suppose and we uh, they they we developed we've got now got a national um covid tracer app so and i think it's got something like two and a half million downloads you know of you know of people who've downloaded the app we have qr codes and every every business in new zealand now has to have a qr code but it's voluntary whether you scan in or not we've gone through a period where we had um, high upload of the app, but low usage of scanning in. Then when we uh, we get a community case, not an outbreak, we see um, people start to scan scan in more. You know, it's kind of human behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have a – there's a problem there with, I think, a general degree of complacency. And then people kind of get a bit of a shock. And when when a community case is announced, because it's quite, it's mm-hmm. not often now, and then people don't want to go back into lockdown, so then they'll suddenly start scanning in again. As far as IT is concerned, there was quite a scramble to produce that um, COVID tracer app. It's not as 
let's say, as fancy and flash as it could be. Um, but our Ministry of Health people that have been involved in developing it, I think they did a very good job in a very short period of time in the scheme of things with very little funding, to be frank, you know, because there was a, you know, we didn't have, you know, things like PPE and um, our public health system uh, had to have a lot of funding, you know, thrown at it. Um, and IT again was kind of kind of a bit of an add-on, you know, well, what can we do to try to trace people? And New Zealand's an egalitarian society, so, you know, we can't force people to use it. You can't force them to download it. If you have two and a half a million of people that downloaded it, that's like half of the population uh, of your country. That's a lot because many countries in Europe, you know, we're at 20, 30 percent of people who downloaded the app. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it is. I hadn't looked at it uh, or thought of it like that. And I, I think it's quite a high percentage of when you take into account people with um, smartphones, um, yeah, because obviously children and people like that um, won't, you know, won't have a phone, so they won't have downloaded it. Yeah, so the, the percentage of download is very good when you put it like that. Um, what we have found, though, that yeah, people were getting very complacent and not scanning into the premises because I'm in the health system and I know my friends and my networks in the health system, They, yeah, we religiously scan in. But at the same time, I've been in, say, going into a supermarket or a store and people have been, I've been scanning in and people have been walking past me not scanning in. When you look at them, it just looks like they don't even doesn't even occur to them. I don't think they've really understood the need for it. Um, but it, yeah, we there has been talk that our government would uh, mandate scanning, um, scanning in, but that could cause a few issues too because the, the premises you're going into may may then have to have security guards that tell people that you know they they won't be able to enter unless they they've scanned in. But we've done really well. Because we're such a small country, what we call at the bottom of the world, we take a lot of pride in kind of what we what we say about punching above our weight. You know, we, we we're very proud about doing better than lots of other countries in the world. And I think, in a way, this was one of those. We we do very well in lots of sport, like we are rugby and sailing and things like that. And we've had lots of academic successes across the world. So we do tend to sort of go, we take a lot of pride. And I think that played a factor too. You know, we just wanted to show the world that yeah, we could beat this thing. Did you see any conspiracy theories? Because basically everywhere, I think there are groups that don't support wearing masks, that are groups that believe that COVID-19 is a conspiracy from I don't know who, and things so a lot of um, negative attitude towards taking this crisis seriously oh i think there has been that and still is i that's i'd say that's that's human nature um we we've still got a we've got a saying in new zealand uh, and it's it's not i'm not saying that it's not a swear word or anything but but we we do, we we talk about don't, you know don't be a dickhead you know, so we, you know, kind of if someone's being stupid and, you know, New Zealanders in general tend to be fairly, I guess, pragmatic um, about things. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody, um, but you, if someone's kind of being just silly or stupid, you know, you, you, it's okay in a way. You've got to, you've got to pick your moment, but it depends on who it is. But, you know, you get, you know, if someone said to me, if I've been saying something silly and someone says to me, look, Scott, you know, stop being a dickhead. Um, well, then you, you sort of pulls you up and you sort of go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe I am. I'll just, 
I'll just shut up, you know. Um, so, you know, we, we do tend to be quite straightforward about these sort of things, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and I guess our, our system, we've got a very, um, strong democratic system in New Zealand, which does, you know, we, we have freedom of thought and freedom of speech. And as long as, you know, in terms of speech, it's, it's respectful. You know, this whole conspiracy theories side of things, you know, I don't think we have a lot of patience for it, uh, and but it's still there. And I and I might be showing my age as well, you know, because I obviously I I was brought up in a time when, uh, you know, as a young fellow, you would, you know, if you were if you were playing up and being silly, you you were generally you know told to settle down and and stop being stupid, you know. So <laughs> so it's, it's just sort of our, our kind of our. Uh, the way our society is, the conspiracy theories are worrying, and particularly with around mask use and so forth. Where, you know, very early on, um, a big part of the problem was we didn't have enough PPE, and mm-hmm. I, you could understand that the government was very concerned about making sure that health workers, particularly at the at the coalface, you know, had all the PPE that they could get. Whilst you know, so there wasn't a big focus on everyone needing to wear masks. Whereas in say like Taiwan and countries like that with that level of experience that they've had, but also massive storage and warehouses full of PPE. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very different, very different to us. So, um, it's only recent in recent times that sort of the adoption of, um, wearing masks on public transport and on airplane flights has become mandatory and people are wearing masks, other, you know, in other areas voluntarily. Um, and that's, that's good to see. What I've found personally, because I haven't been used to wearing a mask, I find it quite difficult, but you do it when you have to do it. Um, one of the areas I find myself and I notice other people doing is kind of being a bit more w- aware of our distancing. You know, you referred to our summit, um, you know, I had 120 people for a whole day. Kind of the rule is, and, you know, we stress this with any event like that, where if you're not feeling, you may have registered, um, and, and in that case, it was a free event so you could attend without paying anything um but even if you had paid and if you weren't well and couldn't attend um well we would encourage you not to intend, attend um and we'd pay you know if you had paid us something we'd pay you that back we'd give you a full refund you know you have to be encouraged not to attend yeah. if you're not feeling feeling well yeah another thing we're very proud of you know we were the first country in the world to be able to have you know sporting events you know with full stadium Stadia of people, you know, 30, 40,000 people in a stadium, um, which, you know, that is indicative of the strength of what we've done in New Zealand, you know, in fighting COVID. I think you better stop saying what's so great because the world is already envious uh, of New Zealand and your prime minister and everything that you had. But going back to health IT for just uh, a little bit, we talked a bit about the infrastructure that is basically only starting to get developed. So one thing that I wonder is um, what does the what do the efforts for the infrastructure mean in terms of standards? One of the goals is to enable innovation by, by breaking down silos and supporting new types of data use. And according to the Ministry of Health, New Zealand is data rich, but just the connectivity is missing increased in importance over the let's say the last 10 years and we've got a very good standards health standards organization it's called um the health information standards organization or, or HISO H-I-S-O for short and that, that's a committee within the ministry of health and it's 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 got various 
representation, people on it that represent um, parts of the sector. And we have an, an uh, what's called an industry representative. Um, so one of our members um, is around that HISO table, so to speak, in, the, in that committee. And that's happened. He's He joined them about two years ago. So we have got an increasingly stronger um, or strengthening focus on on standards, and it's generally I find on the industry um, side, which I, I tend to represent more of, um, there's a very high awareness of the need for standards and and the adoption and use of standards, particularly in the area of you know for obvious reasons security, security and privacy, interoperability, and uh, we're we're introducing SNOMED, um, which uh, standards have been a SNOMED country for quite some time, uh, but now it's it's sort of becoming more and more important. Our Standards are not mandatory in, in the health system apart from those that may be linked. We've just had a um, – on the 1st of December, we have a new Privacy Act um, or uh, uh, legislation or law is being introduced to replace the previous Privacy Act, and that has some mandatory aspects to it if you are collecting any records, any personal records, but then some additional requirements if you if those – uh, records are health related um, and personal health related. So, um, but the majority of our standards are, um, are are encouraged rather than mandated, and and that's that's caused some issues in the past. If you if as a a healthcare provider or a IT provider, you know, if you chose not to follow a standard or adopt a certain standard, you might say, "Oh, well, I've got a." I'm using a, a standard from off overseas, which is better than this standard, then I'll use that one and not this one. So that's caused a bit of inconsistency, but um, I'd say in the last, say, three to four years, I've seen much greater improvement in that area. And it's going to just continue to improve, um, mm-hmm. particularly with, I mentioned the health information platform. Um, there's a quite a strong emphasis on standards adoption and uh and sort of consistency of standard adoption, uh, not necessarily mandating, um, but but again, you know, I think it's going to reflect through into the contracting. So if you if you get a contract, say from a, a DHB, um, for example, for a system, you know, you'll find with more and more now that that contract will require certain standards to be to be implemented and met. What are you hopeful about in the next three to five years in terms of healthcare IT development? And perhaps even your professional path, you know, you are going in a different uh, role now. Maybe you can say a word or two about that as well. Yeah, from an IT perspective, so drawing on what I've been doing to, for the last few years, um, in the next, say, in five years' time, um, what I'd like to see is, um, yeah, we should have by then uh, achieved full interoperability across the health system. So we should have a an environment or an, ec- an ecosystem that's where we see data flowing, data and information, you know, say if I talk about me, so my record or my data, or my information about my health care should be able to flow to wherever and whenever that it's needed to, to provide um, care for me. And and that clearly it's got to be done in a safe and secure and private manner, uh, but it should be happening. So you know, if I um, at the moment, for example, particularly in the North Island of New Zealand, um, if you know I, I live in Auckland, but let's say I was down in our capital called Wellington, and I injured myself, I might fall over and break my leg. Um, 
and I get taken to the local hospital there, that local hospital in Wellington won't be able to look up my record in Auckland. And, um, and so they will be asking me questions like, well, am I allergic to anything? Am I on any sort of medication? And so they rely on me to remember that or know it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm knocked out, you know, I might be unconscious. Well, how can I answer? Um, so, um, the South Island, that region has, they've adopted a system, um, called Health One, which does tend to join up the data better at the moment. So, yeah, interoperability should in, uh, allow me as a patient, as a as a person requiring care at any given t- time, uh, not only to be able to access my own record, no matter where it is, I should be able to see what my health record says about me, and I should be able to to um, update it where there are things that I need to update. You know, it might be simple things like my phone number or my next to kin or whatever. Um, I should also be able to see who else has been looking at my health record and doing something with it. So there needs to be an audit trail there. Um, and then I should also be able to determine who gets to see and use my record and who doesn't. You know, so, you know, the, you know, the, my GP should be able to have full access across or wherever my health record sits. And because some of it might be in a hospital, some of it might be in the general practice, some of it might be at the, my physiotherapist or, or let's say, a chiropractor if I go to one, th- those sorts of things. So mm. um, my G- I'd want my GP to look at all of my record, to, and but um, my physiotherapist may not need to know, uh, see my record about you know, my last um, visit at the hospital unless it's related mm. uh, to something that they're working on. So I think that's really important, and I think until we achieve that, um, it makes it very hard for people to take responsibility for their own care. In that regard, you can learn a lot from Australia, which is close, and their implementation of my health record and many issues that they faced. I recently had a discussion um, about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a dangerous thing because um, Australia and New Zealand enjoy a very special relationship built up over many years. Uh, but we're also we're very we have a very strong and a high rivalry amongst each other across across the Tasman Sea, as we call it, or across across the ditch. So we would say that actually we think the Australians might be telling a few little little white lies there about how well it's working for them. And <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's so the discussion that I had was actually not that um not that great in the sense that um the My Health Records project seems to be in the catch-22 situation where because not all hospitals are digitized, not all patient data gets in the record, which then means that doctors don't are don't really see the meaning of putting information in the record if it's incomplete and at the same time they can't rely on that record of a patient if they're not sure if everything is inside so it's kind of like how will you drive uh, adoption when the whole system is not digitalized yet so 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 you know you still have the opportunity to do better I can assure you, we will do better. We, 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 we're driven to. We, we beat them at rugby. We beat them at most sports, and so, so why can't we beat them at this? You know, I'm actually, I'm actually. Uh, if there's any Australians that are going to be listening to this episode, I'm, I'm purposely stirring them up as well, of course. So, <laughs> which, which they, which they would do to me as well. We, we have a, uh, we have a very. Um, 
uh, collegial relationship. Uh, uh, but at times, yeah, we we do tend to yeah we take that rivalry pretty seriously. But but on the other hand, you know, when it comes to economically and other areas, you know, we yeah we're very very good friends. So um, the other question you asked, I think one of the things that I'd like to see, um, let's say one of the things that I've heard and I've observed for many years now and still do is clinicians and non-clinical healthcare workers at the coalface are struggling every day with just what I would call just sort of common, fairly easily fixed issues that are related to IT. You know, so so where, for example, just the lack of mobility, or you know, the the having a device where you can just access what you need to know about that that patient or that person you're caring for, or or their family, for example, who may be querying, you know, some problem, and and it's so difficult at times to be able to give people information that will help them, uh, and that includes the clinical and non-clinical workforce. Um, I would like to see a point where. Um, their frustrations, you no longer hear their frustrations really where they go, you know, and some of it can be where a GP or a clinician in a hospital or even a healthcare worker going into a person's home to care for them is some of their job, a big portion of their job now is just entering data about that patient. Mm -hmm. they, They become sort of data entry people as opposed to being clinicians or caring or carers. Um, so IT, you know, has got some magic there which can solve so many problems, but we seem to also create additional problems which don't seem to take the workforce into account and ultimately the people that they care for. And one of the things I, you know, going harking back to my background in healthcare and healthcare delivery um, and where I'm going back to with my new role, um, I always talk about that when somebody needs care at any time of their life, the minute whether they're a baby through to an elderly person, you know, when people are not well and they need care, they're at the most vulnerable time of their life at that particular point in time. And so the healthcare system and the people delivering the care, you know, have to be very cognizant of that so that you're dealing with vulnerability. It might, it may well be a, just a sore toe or it might be quite an, you know, it might be COVID. Um, doesn't matter, you know. A, a sore toe creates its own <laughs> its own level of vulnerability. You become vulnerable when you're relying on someone else to to look after you, uh, whoever that someone else might be. And that person that's doing the caring or providing the care has got to have every possible tool possible at their at their disposal to do the best that they possibly can for that vulnerable person. Um, and I don't think IT is doing that very well at the moment. I think it's solving some problems, then creating new ones. And so in five years' time, I'd like to see, you know, the uh, what good would look like would be that the, the providers of care, that those people at the coalface are not complaining about the problems that IT are creating for them. It mm-hmm. becomes ubiquitous. It becomes ubiquitous. And we, we don't actually talk about IT or health IT or digital health anymore. Uh, it's just health care. It's, you know, because it's part of it. Um, uh, and it will achieve that when the problems, when it solves the problems and doesn't create new ones. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.